Um, we're in, a, we're in a, a series on the book of John. We've been going through the book of John. Uh, I, I, I've loved it, but also I'll say it's wrecked me too. It's just been so convicting. Um, all this stuff, God has just been working on me and dealing with me and issues in my life. So we're going to look today at something that's, that's very familiar for a lot of people. It's called the triumphal entry. It's when Jesus enters in Jerusalem and, and says, I am the king. Will you accept me? And I'm going to read to you John chapter 12, verses 12 to 26. It's a little bit of a long passage. Just follow along. You can follow along on, 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 your, on your phone if you have that or on your Bible. Uh, the next day, beginning of verse 12, the next day, the great crowd, it's a very huge crowd that had come for the festival. Um, just, just interrupting myself now. The Passover is coming. It's the Passover week leading up to it. Huge, huge festival. So this great crowd had come for the festival. They heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will be also. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So just a little bit of a review setting this up. First of all, Jesus went to Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. He was warned, you know, they're, they're going to try to kill you. And he knows that. So he goes to Bethany, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. And the authorities then, if you remember when we looked at this, the authorities realized things are getting out of control. Everyone's believing in him. This is going to ruin it for us. And then Mary, the next thing up is Mary honors Jesus at a dinner in a radical, unorthodox way. Knowing that he's about to die, she blesses him. She, she pours that perfume on him as a, almost, as almost, you could almost say like last rites. She knew he was going to die and she did this for him. So now there's this huge crowd at Bethany. All this stuff is going on. And the chief priests, we read back in chapter 11, the chief priests then decide not only does Jesus have to die, Lazarus has to die, right? We gotta, he, he's not going to collect life insurance twice. We've got to get rid of this guy, right? So, so this is what's going on. Now here's, I was thinking about this because we're going we're gonna to look at this and see how this works out. When I um, used to work with teenagers, one of the things that we love to do sometimes, after everything was over and the, most of the crowd had gone home, there'd be a few that would hang on. Bill Manning was one of the ones that would always hang on. He's now our missionary in on the Navajo reservation, and uh, we would play this game. We would go into the gym, a uh, bit bigger than this, 
and, and we would turn off all the lights, and we'd get one of those footballs. It's one of those kind of foamy ones with a tail, so you can throw it like a mile, and it has a whistle on it. So we'd turn off all the lights. Now, if we turned off all the lights in here, it would seem very dark at first, but after a little bit, your eyes would adjust. Because of the exit lights, you'd still be able to see some. So I used to go to the, to the panel and cut the exit lights. Now, that's against the law, so I don't encourage anyone to do it, but since I've already done it... Um, it would make the room pitch black because there were no windows. And then we'd spread out, and the rule was you can't move. And then we'd start throwing it. And so what would happen is you'd have no, you'd, and, the, and you would just hear this whistle, and you'd think, that's coming, it's hard in a big room, that's coming straight for, it could be going the other way, but you would think it was coming straight for you. And so the temptation to turn, and that was the deal. Every once in a while, we just whip the lights on and see who had turned their backs and who, who was a punk chicken, right? So, so what happened? Why? Now, here's the deal. I mean, I learned this a long time ago. Games can be fun, but if you add just a tiny element of danger, they get outrageously fun. They just become so much more fun when you think, I might get smacked in the face with this thing. It's a foam. It's not going to break any bones. Don't worry, parents. We still do it. Um, but the, here was the deal. Here was the deal. You could hear it, but you couldn't see it. In other words, you were l- missing just one part of reality that made the game so exciting. It's like this. I wear glasses. Why? Because I have a vision problem. If I take my glasses off, I know most of you are here, but I'd have trouble identifying you, right? So I don't see reality quite as well. I don't see it quite as much as it really is. I can live without my glasses, but I would be missing essential parts. Spiritually speaking, we have a vision problem. In some ways, it's like we're in a dark room. In some ways, it's like we need glasses. We need help to see things the way they really are. We need help seeing the things that are unseen. And Scripture, in a sense, is our glasses. The Holy Spirit is involved in bringing Scripture to light in us. And we need this help to see clearly to live rightly, to see and live out the essentials of living life on this earth, to live the way we were made to live. We need to see Jesus for who he truly is in this passage, and we need to see him for who he is not. And we need to see what that means for us. And so as Jesus is in Bethany, now he's coming into Jerusalem, and it says there's two Huge crowds. There's the crowd that was in Bethany because uh, coming to see all about Lazarus and had been growing and growing. And there's a crowd in Jerusalem that is gigantic because it's the beginning of the greatest festival of the year. And so I want us to see our king. We see the king. We see our king. And so in verse 12, that I just read this, but I just want to reaffirm it. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus went on, on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now, that part, they're quoting scripture there. That's from Psalm 118. And that's a psalm about when there was this grave danger and God worked and saved them from the danger. He worked and saved them from the danger. They're quoting from Psalm 118, and it says, they're blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And they keep saying, Hosanna. Now, we've talked about this before. I know some of you know this, but we need to just remember this again, all right? The word Hosanna means save us. 
That's what it means. It's not necessarily a spiritual word. It's not talking about salvation necessarily, because in Psalm 118, it, what it was talking about was being saved from an enemy, being saved from the sword. And so here they're repeating that same word. And so we want to take, a, we got to stop. Here we go. A little history. Like history, history. Yeah, it's good. Okay. That's my little history song. Because history will help us understand what's going on here. Their expectations were very strong because of something that had happened 200 years earlier when a wicked ruler, a Greek named Antiochus Epiphanes, had conquered the Jews. And at one point, and, and, and as you understand the Jews, you understand how horrible this is, they marched into the temple, these Greek soldiers, with Antiochus Epiphanes at the head, and they marched into the holy place, and they went into the Holy of Holies, and they sacrificed a pig, the most unclean animal that a Jew could think of. They drained its blood and forced the priests to drink it. And so it's this desecration. It's, it's like they would have all said, we would rather you had killed us. And so Antiochus Epiphanes, he, he's ruling with an iron hand. He's doing these horrific things. And the Jews hate him. And finally, one, at one point, a Jew named Judas Maccabeus, he rose up. He got his family. They gathered a small band with them. They started collecting arms. They started a guerrilla war. And then it grew, and then they, they suddenly had an army. And they defeated the Greeks. They overthrew them, kicked them out of their land, and they became independent, an independent nation again. And to celebrate that, they minted coins. And the coins look like this. Palm branches. Those palm branches mean we have been freed from oppression. We have been freed from slavery. We have gotten, you know, revenge on those who oppress us now. So understand now what's going on with palm branches. You know, in a lot of churches, I mean, I've, I'm sure we've done it here. Sometimes on Paul Sunday, Palm Sunday, we give all the little kids palm branches and in some churches, they pray down to the front, and they wave their palm branches, and they yell, Hosanna, Hosanna. And what no one realizes is what they're saying is, let's go kill Romans. Let's go kill Romans. That's what that means. That's what's going on there. And so the palm branch appeared on all these coins to celebrate the victory over the Romans. And now it's 200 years later, and they've picked up palm branches because they want the same thing. They're oppressed. The oppressor now is not the Greeks, it's the Romans. And they're waving them around. And they're heading for, Jesus is heading for, and all the pilgrims are heading for the temple. Now there's, there's a, a picture of the temple, not a real picture, kind of a painted. And if you see in the top right of the temple, there's that fortress that sits right at the corner. That's the fortress uh, um, of, of, of the Romans. And that fortress is how they kept track of what's going on. It overlooked the temple, and they would always have soldiers. But when it was Passover week, which is when they always had problems with the Jews, all kinds of things went wrong, they put more up, and they watched closer. And one other thing they did, Pontius Pilate from his capital in Caesarea would march to Jerusalem with a battalion of Roman troops, and they would enter, and it would look something like this. It would be what we would call shock and awe. They would come in with their chariots, with their soldiers, with their, with their war horses. 
and, and archers and everything as a, this huge show of force. The, the fortress, uh, Antiochus is what it's called, that fortress held about 1,000 soldiers, but he would bring 2,000 more approximately to reinforce the fortress. Why? For Passover, because this is when the problems happened. All right? So understand what's going on here. There he is marching in, uh, um, Pontius Pilate with all these Roman soldiers, and they would come in through the east gate. And the day they would come is the exact same day Jesus is marching in through the west gate on the opposite side of the city on a donkey with people yelling, Hosanna, save us from the Romans. You see, and that's why for the, for the leaders, this was horrifying. This is like, well, this is going to just turn into bloodshed. They were so worried about this. They're saying to him, the, the uh, people are saying, Jesus, be like Judas Maccabeus and deliver us. Deliver us the same way he did. The problem is, as Jesus entered on a cold, is their expectations and their focus was way off base. This, this was totally not the plan God had and not God's intention. Jesus, they were yelling for Jesus to save us, and Jesus was going to do it in a way they didn't expect, something that was much bigger, something that was more profound, that was more powerful than they could even fathom. Because the way of the sword never works that way. It still doesn't. Sometimes I want God to save me from the life I have. I, I don't know, what is your life like? I want total relief from trouble, from traffic, from aging, from paying the IRS, from schedules. Why? because it's all about me. That's what I'm thinking when I want those things. But God's heart beats for others. And his way is the way of the servant. His world and his plan does not revolve around me. That's not how it works. Why? Because he's the king. And he was the king then, he's the king now. It's just that he wasn't the king they wanted. His coming does bring blessedness, the ultimate blessedness. Eternal life is what his coming brings. Have you ever wondered? I mean, I remember you used to think about this. How could all these people, thousands and thousands of people, welcome Jesus into the city, and within a week they're yelling, crucify him? Because he didn't do what they wanted. He didn't become the king they wanted. We can still struggle with that. Oh, we don't, you know, we're, we know, know enough not to say it in such vulgar terms, but sometimes Jesus doesn't do what we wanted and we get upset. And we wonder, where are you, God? You're not doing what I want. But that's not his plan. He's the ultimate king. He brings magnificence and majesty, yet he's meek and lowly and gentle. He's the fulfillment of prophecy. Next verses say, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. This is a quote from Zechariah, right, from Zechariah chapter 9. In fact, in fact, as we go, as we continue in the next few weeks, we're, we're in the last week of Jesus' life, we're going to see prophecies fulfilled over and over and over and over. 
And so we see the king. Now I want you to see, we see our king. We see the savior, our savior. We need to talk about this for a minute. Talk about our need of a king, our need of a savior. We have deep-seated needs. You know, people will do anything for what they view as true love. People will follow a servant leader. People will work hard for the possibility of a utopia. My father fought in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II, and he had a sergeant who said whenever they had something really particularly difficult to do, the sergeant would say, you, you, and you, you're going with me to go do that. We're going to go scout out this position. We're going to go take care of this. We're going to go. He always included himself. And I remember my dad saying, we would die for that man. Because we knew he never said, you, you, and you go. He said, you, you, and you go with me. A servant leader. We're willing to die for him. People, people uh, will do anything for those kind of things. They're a foretaste of what's to come, but they're not the answer. You may find someone that you love dearly and loves you dearly. And that's a taste of what to come, what's to come. But at times they will let you down because we're human beings. We need, we need the true king. He's the answer to all those needs. C.S. Lewis talks about this uh, to a huge extent. He, the, all the best stories, all the enduring stories have a hero that is fierce and meek at the same time. Aragorn in Lord of the Rings, strong and yet tender at the very same time. Invincible in battle, and yet modest. Angry at evil, and yet tears and sorrow. Brave, and yet sweet and thoughtful. That's the true type of servant leader. And we're attracted to this. Those kind of people are the kind of people that we go, man, why are we attracted to this? Because they never quite work out. But we want them to desperately. No one can possibly be all of that because it's impossible for a human being. But Scripture tells us that Jesus is the lion who is a lamb. He is both at once. In our day, movies portray heroes with complex problems and failures in their lives. Why? To be realistic. That's the way things are. That's real life. We accept it that way because we know it's not possible for someone to be so perfect like that. We have what we call the real, it's what's all around us. And we have the ideal, which would be the perfect. And that is something we look to and go, man, I wish it was that way. I wish our heroes were that way, but they have failures. Why? Because it's real life. The real and the ideal never quite meet. But in Jesus, they do. The ideal became real. We look around us and we say, this is just the way it is. We just accept it. We've given up on our heroes. We say, accept reality. The best things in life are fleeting. Our bodies are decaying. People disappoint us. This is about as good as it gets. And so we accept, okay. We accept mediocre. But in our hearts, we know we were made for more. And in Jesus, when you walk with him each day, becomes a day full of possibilities. You never know 
the possibilities that might come up that day, the off chance word or, 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 or little story that someone tells you that suddenly opens a door for you to have an impact on their life for Jesus. In Jesus, you never know what the opportunities may be. You never know that you might affect someone for eternity. One average, mediocre day in your life suddenly becomes a life that touches eternity. The possibility of doing or saying something that means something. The possibility each day of being a part of God's glorious plan for this earth. How can this happen? It happens because Jesus didn't come to deal with political oppression like the Jews wanted him to. He came to die for them and die for the world. His triumph is in his weakness because he is the lion and the lamb. He says, I am strong enough to die for you. I was thinking about this. I read this somewhere. The essence of sin is us taking the place of God in our life. The essence of salvation is of Jesus taking the place of us. When we know that we're a sinner, when we accept Jesus as our Savior, when we yield to him, we start to become the person we were made to be. So we see the king, we see the savior, our king, our savior, and now we can see the change he can make in our lives. He is our only hope. Without his kingliness, we tend to go one of two ways. We we live like trying to show that we're worthy, that we have glory. We talked about this in the past in scripture where it talks about us, uh, one word that Paul uses sometimes is a word for a glory grasper someone who's grasping for glory, wanting to get it, not having it, but desperately wanting it. We're glory graspers. I want to be somebody. I want people to know me. I want to be recognized. I want to be complimented. I'm grasping. And then we see Jesus. What does Paul talk about in Philippians, in in the book of Philippians? He says, not grasping. Seeing equality with God, that's not something to be grasped. He wasn't a glory grasper. He gave it up for us. And so one of the two ways we go is we work so hard to be somebody. We work hard and try to get what our culture tells us is worthy and honorable and important. We strive and we grasp. Or the other way is we just give up. We just accept it. It's kind of mediocre, but it's my life. This often comes when we realize that our efforts at being someone are just failing. And deep inside, we despise ourselves and we're angry at our lot in life. If only I'd have had, I could have been somebody. If I'd only had this opportunity. If someone had given me that, then I would be, I would do better with that than they would. Right? See this all the time when we, you know, I read an article about people who win the lottery, a, a surprising number, not all of them, but I mean, you know, a significant number within like five years are penniless. And I was reading at, at all the comments at the bottom of the article. And all you saw, most of it, what you saw was people saying, those people are idiots. If I'd have won that money, I'd have, no, I'd, I'd have invested and I'd have done this and I'd have done this and I'd have more after five years than I started with. That's what I do, right? We all think that. I think it. I haven't won the lottery, though. So I've been able to put it into action. But I'd like to think that, right? 
We all, so we have this, we have this sense we're working hard, working hard to be somebody, to be recognized, or we just give up and say, you know, this is the way it is. Just, just settle in for it. Get what you can. But Jesus is creating kingliness in people. When we invite him into our lives, when we submit to him, he makes us strong enough to be weak. He makes us servants, not to get self-worth, not, to, not out of some desire to be the rescuer of somebody, but to serve them because they are created in the image of God. He makes us secure enough to build up others. He makes us strong enough to forgive. He makes us so that we can transform our culture, not, not hate our culture, not adopt our culture, transform our culture, turn it into something different and something new. In verse 20, it says, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request, Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew, Philip, in turn, told Jesus. So what happens here? What is happening here? They have become agents of change. This is what happens with us. People don't necessarily come up to us and say, Hey, I'd like to see Jesus. But what happens is people like to see Jesus. And we're the people who can live it out and show it to them. Then we become agents of change. People see it, and they see Jesus. It works the same today as it did all the way back then. In verse 23, Jesus replies to them. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces. If it falls to the ground and dies, and it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. I think I worded that wrong. Um, Jesus teaches about his death. The principle is this, die to self. He tells us, Put yourself second sometimes. Don't put yourself first. It's not all about you. It's not all about what you want. You need to step back some and say, what's important to God here? <clears throat> One of the things, you know, sometimes if I share something, I always think you're going to think, oh, Bob, you're so spiritual. It doesn't always work. But One of the things I try to do a lot of times, if, if my wife and I um, get into an argument, I was going to say a discussion, but you know it's an argument, right? If we get into an argument, one of the things I try to always say to myself is, what does Bev need right now? What does she need right now? She doesn't need for me to win and go, Paha, sucker, I was right, you were wrong, fess up, you know? She doesn't need that. Even if I'm right, which I think I am most of the time, even if I'm right, she doesn't need me to lord that over him, over her. What does she need? And that's just something I try, because what it does is it frames the whole thing a little bit differently. We're in a disagreement, but suddenly I'm thinking, what's best for her here? And, and, and I want to say, what's best for her doesn't mean I go, you're right, I'm wrong, even though I don't think I'm wrong. That's, that doesn't do it, because generally she can see through that, you know, she knows that. So what's best? What is, what is happening God is telling us he wants us to be that kind of person. He wants to be a person that sometimes steps back and says, what's best for these people? What's best? This guy really annoys me. What's best for him? What, what does he need right now? 
And so we start to think that way. What happens then is we get this perspective on things. We see things a little differently. We see people a little differently. And we begin to have the possibility of impacting them for eternity. Why? Because Jesus says in verse 25, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Jesus is saying, we talked about this last week some, life is found in me. The life you were made for is found in Jesus. It's not found in another person. You're not found in another person on this earth. You, you may have a great relationship with that person. You may have a, just a loving and deep relationship with that person, but ultimately, they do not have the power to make you into the person God made you to be. Only God does. And so Jesus is saying, life is found in me. Not chasing life. Life is found in me. Um, I might have mentioned this last week. I, I can't always remember. Um, there was a big study done. I think it was at Harvard. I was reading about it where they were talking about what they thought were the, the most happy and satisfied people, generally speaking. And they found the people who were most happy and most satisfied, generally speaking, were people who were involved in serving others. They were involved in community projects. They were involved in things. They were, and they, they were saying a high degree of those, some of those people were people who, who were followers of a faith, you know, like Christians or whatever. But they, their goal was to, to serve others. And they said they, generally speaking, are the happiest and most content people. But what they, interestingly, what they found was as they began to work through this thing and they were doing this study with it, was they found that if they told people you will be most happy if you serve others. And then those people go serve thinking, this is going to make me so happy. It didn't work. Why? Because their focus was on the happiness, not the serving. The serving was just an end to the happiness. And so what they found was, it was the people who just served ended up satisfied and happy. But the people who wanted to be happy, they screwed the whole project up. It didn't work. It's kind of like, congratulations, you've discovered what Jesus taught. 2,000 years late, but that's okay. You're coming, right? You're, that's good. What's happening here? He's saying life is found in me, not in chasing life. When we get that, we become agents of change. We bring people. We lead people to Jesus. In the Old Testament, at one point, the nation of Israel is taken into captivity. And they're, they're taken to Babylon. And what they do is, they all kind of get in their, they, their holy huddle. They all live together. They, they built this little area where they could all be together and worship together and eat together to keep strong, to remain strong. And God had told them, you'll be there for 70 years, and then I'm going to bring you home. We're going to hang on by our teeth for 70 years. And, and what happened? God speaks to to uh, Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah the prophet says, no, don't do that. Get into the community. Work in the community. Move into the community. Affect the community for the good. We bring about change in our community and even in our world when we begin to live that way. Jesus, at one point, he sent his disciples out into the communities. And when they came back, you know, he's kind of like, how'd it go? And they're like, oh, it was so awesome. 
you know, they, we saw this and this happened and, you know, thing, boom, all the cool stuff. And what does Jesus do? If you remember that, what Jesus says is don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in this, that your name is written in heaven. What is he saying? Because that is so much bigger than anything. That's bigger than a healing. That's bigger than a resurrection. That's bigger than anything you can imagine. Your name is written in the book of life. That's the biggie. And he says that to us. This is your foundational truth that will help you live like a servant and help you live like royalty. What are things like cars and houses and jewelries and likes compared to that? They're nothing. They're nothing. We have access to the king. This gives us perspective. Have you ever been going through a difficult time in your life? You know, like, oh, this is so hard. And then somebody shares something, and they're going through something. You go, oh, wow. That is so much harder. What happens? You got perspective, right? It helped you get perspective. And this is what happens to us. When we begin to realize who we are, when we begin to see our relationship with Jesus Christ and what it means, we begin to see my name is written in the book of life in heaven. That gives me perspective. What does it matter that somebody cut me off on the highway? My name's written in the book of life. What does it matter that somebody treated me a certain way at work? My name is written in the book of life in heaven. It's perspectives in difficult times, right? I know this person may think I'm a jerk, but the king of the universe loves me. So it it gives me perspective, right? I know this is a difficult situation that I'm in, but ultimately my name is written in the book of life. Ultimately, we see um, um, in the Old Testament where God says, I have your name tattooed on my hand. Your name is on my hand. Think about that. What is he trying to tell him? He's trying to tell him, you're that close to me. You're, that, you're always in front of me. Your name right there. I see it all the time. My name is written in the book of life. My name is written on the hand of God. That gives us perspective. I am a child of the king. And then what happens when I get that kind of perspective, I can change the world around. I can change things around us. I mean, I I think about, I know we harp on it sometimes, but in Arizona, we are seeing people being transformed. We are seeing a culture in that area being transformed, not the Navajo culture becoming like our culture, no, the Navajo, Navajo culture became, becoming this culture of these Native Americans who know and witness about Jesus. How is that happening? People got involved. We started it 20-something years ago. We just kept going back and going back and going back and going back. And now we're a part of that community. The people in that community look forward They talk about, they plan for when the group from Virginia comes. Lives are being changed. The culture is being changed. In a place 
that is somewhat sacred to them, they are now allowing, at times, a church service, a wedding, a Christian wedding, a Christian funeral. It's changing. It's changing because people got involved. And I know, I know, you know, because I know what can happen sometimes. We talk about these things and people go, oh, I'm so busy doing stuff. That's, oh, maybe. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to make you over-scheduled and, and, and too busy because I know there are a lot of people here that are doing things. You're doing things on your own. You're doing things at work. There's people, there's people, people are helping with port on times when we're not there necessarily and we don't even know it. It's just people are helping, helping the homeless. Gabe Virginia Morgan and a number of other people here are, are helping with suicide prevention. People are volunteering at Thrive. People are volunteering with Young Life. Many of you, you, you understand and you use your job as a way of glorifying God. It's too many, too many to do that, that, too many to do that to even be able to mention, but this is how change happens. This is how change happens in us and in the people around us in our community. We become agents of change. And the job is huge. I mean, all we have to do is watch the news. We know the job in our country is huge. We know the job throughout the world is huge. But we have a king who tells us that nothing is impossible when God is in it. And he is doing it. His church is growing. His kingdom is swelling because he's doing it, not us. He calls us to be willing and then he brings us opportunities. And so I would encourage you this week, each morning, maybe, when you get up, say, God, I want to serve you. Help me see it when it comes. Help me see it when it comes. Because if anything we've learned from the book of John is that God comes and does things in weird and crazy and strange ways, ways that were totally unexpected. So don't have... Don't have this preconceived idea of what God's going to use you for. Just say, God, I'll do it. Just show me. And, of course, the flip side of that is if you pray that, you need to do it, right? If God's going to take the time to show you what he wants you to do, you need to step up and do it. And then you become an agent of change. Then you become a person who's involved with changing this world, growing the kingdom of God. There's nothing there's nothing that's more important because your name is written in the book of life. So we see our king, we see our savior, and we see the change that he can make in us. This is all a part of what Jesus was doing then, and he's doing the same thing now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we understand that as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he proclaimed himself to be the king, but he wasn't the king that people wanted. Oh, Lord, help us, because they did not see what they wanted to see. Help us to be willing to put aside our preconceived notions and be willing to serve you however you lead, whether it's a person at work, a person in our home, a person that we see in our neighborhood. Give us opportunities, Lord to impact people's lives for eternity. And Father, help us to see that you work in strange and wonderful ways and that it is a thrill to be a part of what you're doing 
in this world. There's no greater thing. Lord, last of all, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who died for us. As we accept him, that moment, you write our name on your hand. You write our name in the book of life. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.